Welcome into another edition of the Duck Territory with Educk podcast. I'm Matt Preem. Eric Scopel is across the way. Hey guys. Talking Oregon Duck basketball and uh, maybe we'll dabble into some football recruiting to. It's that time of year. Leave things upbeat as we end this podcast. Uh, but maybe. Well, yeah, maybe. We'll recap, uh, Oregon's basketball trip down to the Bay Area where they got the split. Um, I think that's completely flown under the radar because of Saturday's outcome. Right. Uh, and rightfully so, I should say. And then, uh, Oregon hosted the final recruiting weekend and we'll kind of talk timeline of what's next to come and, and what can happen before signing day. Uh, but first let's, let's look at this Oregon basketball team. They are 15 and 8, 5 and 5 in the Pac-12, uh, going down into the Bay Area. They, it was, okay, they got to 500. Uh, now they've got an opportunity to make up some ground, possibly even position themselves for third or fourth in the Pac-12 standings going into this current week. Uh, and they basically didn't do that at all. They, they got a, a 66-53 win over Cal and it was that was ugly. That was a very difficult game to watch. Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at it, this road trip has always been really tough on Oregon. I mean, they they think swept it last year for the first time in forever, and they they had split I think the year before. But they have had a really hard time winning down there. So for them to get a split, it's great. But you also look at kind of how it was played. I mean, I Cal to me, I looked like, and somehow they beat Oregon State, which is remarkable. Yeah. Just Cal to me, and again, I don't want to be. Too hyperbolic, but that looked like maybe the worst Pac-12 basketball team I've seen, at least offensively, in, a long in, time. in like a decade. I mean, yeah. they, they were really, they, they had basically no one that could shoot a basketball. And and for that game to be a 13-point game final, okay, that looks okay, but it was a five-point game with about six minutes to go, and you're going, how how, how, how is Cal staying in this game? No one can score. Um, Oregon is just, you know, stubbing themselves in the toe over and over again, dribbling the ball off their foot, throwing alley-oops up the court that aren't even close, you know. Uh, you know, lazy passes over the zone. I mean, they turned it over so much, and and that led you know to a lot of Cal's points. And so you go, okay, they they guess they win. That was the, that was the desired result. They got the win. That's kind of what they needed. If they beat Stanford, they can be in third place in the conference or tied for it maybe. And they lose by thirty five. Yeah, ninety six to sixty one, which is the most points they've ever lost under Dean Altman. You know, and that was just with so much on the line. You thought, okay, even if they lose, maybe they'll be competitive and that'll kind of up, be uplifting. This, to me, feels pretty demoralizing in terms of, like, they had a game they needed to win, and then they lose. Played by, their worst game they, they've played all year. They, yeah, and they're not even competitive really at all in the second half. Uh, the, the, the Stanford loss, 96-61, was, I think, an avalanche and a perfect storm of sorts. Because it was. Oregon played their worst possible game, uh, or, you know, Close. Close to it, or in the, their worst performance to date this season. Right. And then on the flip side, Stanford played probably the best that they've ever played. Mm-hmm. And you were on this Stanford bandwagon before the year started. I was. And, you know, on the Pac-12 networks after the game was over, through that, through the weekend, they discussed the Stanford team at length of that they, they should be, they, they should be considered for the NCAA tournament because they had so many injuries in the non-conference yeah. period that, that, Knocked them. I think they had like a, a six and eight non-conference yes, record. Five and seven. Yeah, yeah it, losing record non-conference. It was not good. Um, but they are now currently tied for fourth in the Pac-12 at seven at seven and four in the Pac-12. Uh, they've got 
they lost by by Arizona by just two points. They were up in the second half, I think, by what fourteen or eleven yeah, points uh, against the Wildcats. They've got a win over USC. Uh, I believe they've got a win over UCLA. Uh, they have a win over Arizona State. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a team that's probably when healthy tournament capable capable of getting to the NCAA tournament. And Oregon ran into that buzzsaw of that team playing at the highest level. And but on the flip side, you have to look at it and wonder. This you know this is a team for Oregon going into the Bay Area. They knew they knew it was at stake. They knew how important a win was for not only for their NCAA chances, but hey, look, position yourself for winning the conference tournament right. by getting into that top four, getting that first round by, and they they laid an egg, and now it's almost virtually impossible for Oregon to get to second in the Pac-12. Now they're, you know, they're trying to can we get to third? Can we get to fourth? Is that still possible? They're only a game and a half out yeah. of of uh the two-way tie for fourth place with UCLA and Stanford, but they don't play Stanford the rest of the way. So if they tie it with the Cardinal, the Cardinal have the edge and they get in. They have to play at UCLA. So that's going to be a difficult stretch right there. Uh Oregon's going to have to make up some ground. If they want to get into that top four, and on top of that, their RPI is 95. Yeah. The, their best signature win is a win at Arizona State, who continues to, to crumble. Worse, worse by the day. Yeah, they're now officially out of the top 25. Um, and this is a team, though, that, you know, and I think the strange, the strangest part for me is it's now the, the first full week of February, and I'm wondering in my back of my mind after the Stanford game, <laughs> Is Oregon going to have to make lineup changes again? Because they did it for the Stanford game. They put Paul White in instead of in place of Kenny Wooten. Is Oregon going to have to tinker with lineups again? And this is usually the point under right. Dan Altman okay, where figure everything's out. figured out and everything's ironed out and everyone's starting to ascend and this team is still treading water. I, I, I actually, I think some of us were uncertain of why White was put in there for Wooten, but White played a heck of a lot better than Wooten did, you know, at least offensively on Saturday. And I think that move probably made some sense given what Stanford has, and he's probably thinking with White can get some foul trouble early on those Stanford bigs, they go to the bench. I'm not sure if he'll stick with White, but right. but yeah, you just look at it. Oregon has a chance still to make up ground. I, mean, I wouldn't say the season's lost, but making an NCAA tournament as an at-large basically would require they run the table in the regular season. And, and they're not going to do that. And then play in the conference championship game. I mean, if they won 10 straight from here, yeah, they'd probably make the tournament, but th- I, I think you see, I mean, coming off a 35-point loss, it's hard to project that that's going to happen. You look at the schedule, it's really difficult. Washington just beat Arizona. Oregon plays them twice. Then they also play, what? USC, UCLA. Three of the other top four teams in the conference in USC, Arizona, and UCLA to finish out. I mean, they're going to play, and Arizona State. I mean, they're playing, you know, four of their, or six of their final eight games are against really good teams. It seems kind of inconceivable that they're going to be able to win enough games to move up the standings or to really have any tournament resume. Um, and I guess this is the point of the season maybe where you start kind of resetting expectations for what you think is going to happen every week. I mean, I think if they could finish at 500 in Pac-12 play, and that means they'd, they'd go 500 from here because they're 5-5 five and five right now and they split the, you know, the final eight, that's probably a win. They said if they go in the NIT, maybe they make a nice NIT run. A lot of those guys return next year. They've kind of got some momentum. I think that's I don't want to say best case scenario, but that feels like kind of that you take that realistic as a, right now at this point. You take that as a win. You you mentioned that the season's not lost, and that's 100 percent true. Because as crazy as it sounds, uh, the Ducks sit five and five, fifteen and eight overall. They've got a 95 RPI and the highest 
uh, a team has gotten, I think it's 67, which was USC in 2011, uh, when the Pac-12 was a much more stronger conference yeah. than it is today. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But at the same time, you know, you need to kind of get break that 60 threshold mark to, to, sure. to really have a chance. And from just a pure standpoint of is Oregon still alive? Yes, because the team that comes to town on Thursday is the Washington Huskies. They're third in the Pac-12. They're seven and three. Uh, they're kind of a surprise team. Very much so. And in terms of Mike Hopkins, the, the new head coach there. But if I think if you go back and I always tend to listen to what coaches talk about, and, and the, the coach we talk to the most is Dana Altman, and one of his biggest keys for a winning team is experience. And this is a Husky team that two years ago was a lot like this Oregon team today. Uh, they had a lot of newcomers. They had a lot of freshmen. Now those guys are all juniors. They've got a star freshman in Jalen Noel, uh, and they're an experienced club. And they come to town on Thursday, and they're 38th in the RPI. This would be, hands down, Oregon's most impressive win to date uh, if they get that win. And it would be a win that would probably catapult Oregon 20 spots in the RPI. Yeah, move them uh, all the way up to, you know, high 70s. Uh, and then next weekend, or uh, next week, they, they go down to L.A. and they, they play USC on Thursday, who's 44th in the RPI right now. Uh, and the RPI for USC is going to go up because they're playing at the Arizona schools this week. Uh, and then they play on Saturday next weekend again at home, uh, on the road against UCLA, who's 54th in the RPI. And then they come home, and and this is where it gets, you know continues to stay difficult. Very challenging. You know, they play at home against a, a Arizona State team who's five and six in the Pac-12, but they're still a top 50 team in the RPI. And then they have Senior Day against the Arizona Wildcats, who are ranked uh, 13th in the country and uh, nine and two in the Pac-12, first in the in the league, and have an RPI of 18. And you know. Then you go back on the road to Washington to close out the year, and yeah. you know have a Saturday game at at Washington. So you got an opportunity still. You know it's still on the table. I think where you know Oregon can, if 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 you if you just want to say what would it take to get there, if they went out and re- in the regular season they're in. Yeah. I, I think for every regular season loss you have, you need to make up for that in the NCAA, in the Pac-12 tournament. And so basically, what that means is is if if they lose two two games. They got to get to the conference championship game, I think, to get in. Uh, if they lose three, they've got to win the conference championship game to get the automatic bid because they're not going. If they lose three more games, and the only caveat I would have to that is, if they lose to Washington State at home or on the road, they're done. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you can't lose to Washington State. That's their only game that is you know sub I think top fifty almost because yeah. UCLA is right on that bubble there. Yeah, you. I mean, <clears throat> sure. I mean, there, there's there's a ton of top, you know, 50 RPA wins are possible right there and available for them to take, but uh, I just... The realistic situation is not I was going to say, I was going to say, just based upon what I saw this last weekend, I, you know, they, getting to four and four over that stretch to me would probably be classified as, as kind of a win and maybe a little optimistic just because of what we've seen and it's also, I mean, they should probably beat Washington State twice, so there's two wins and maybe they beat Washington and Arizona State at home, but I think those road games are going to be hard for them. And you know, at Washington State might be tough just because they've struggled on the road this season. Um, you know, if, for them to really make it in, like you said, they're going to have to win basically every single one of these games. And I just, I also just kind of switching gears really quickly back. I just wonder what the committee does when they see Oregon lost in February by 35 yeah. to Stanford, a team that we've mentioned. I, I don't, they're kind of a wild card. I don't know what the committee is going to do with them, but if you look at Oregon, you go. 
okay, well, they won it all these games at the end here, but what about that 35-point loss? I mean, is that going to be one of those things that's just so – the optics are so bad to lose by that much that late in the season that they kind of go like, oh, that might, might even negate some of the runs. So it'll be interesting to see. I mean, I think that just that, that Saturday game leaves such a bad taste in kind of everyone everyone's mouth, and you'd hope kind of looking forward here to, to Thursday with Washington, you know, a team who's fighting for a conference championship, that they come and, and kind of play maybe their best game of the season. And, and you kind of touched on it, I think, yesterday. You wrote yeah. a whole story about how they've responded to, to tough losses. Yeah, historically under Dana Allman, it's difficult – to find a lot of games, uh, the last four or five years since 2013, 2014 season where they've lost by 12 or more. Right. Uh, there's been eight instances in four seasons essentially. Uh, very impressive. Very impressive where they've, you know, they've basically been in every single game and that's not non-conference or conference, but that's everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and you look at those eight games historically suggest the Ducks come out and they not only play harder, they play tougher, they play better, they win. Uh, they're 6-2 and two in games when uh, they struggle and get blown out and then have to come back. And the two losses, uh, those are games that came in the 2014-2015 season. And what I mentioned in that story at the end was is that was the team, if you remember, that had Joe Young as a senior, Jalil Abdul-Bassett as a senior, Elgin Cook as a junior, and then a whole bunch of freshmen of the names of Jordan Bell, Dylan right. Brooks, Casey Benson, Ahmad Rory. Uh, they had Dwayne Benjamin on that team as well. That was a junior. Um, and that was basically their team. They had a ton of inexperience. Uh, they had a ton of freshmen that they were relying on or, or newcomers that they were relying on uh, to win games. And uh, that was, you know, that season they had two games where they lost and then they lost again. Uh, and my question with that that story was, is this year's team the 2014-2015 team right. incarnate, or are they uh, a better team than that? I think they're a better team than that team, um, on paper at least. And, but it's can they put things together? Can they toughen things up? Um, this team has more seniors uh, than, than that team. This team has, uh, I think, better talent than that 14-15 team had. Um the question is, I don't think they've kind of fully bought in yet. Yeah, I, yeah. But the on paper part to me, I and mean, we talked before the season. On paper, this was the most talented yeah. team. If you just use recruiting rankings, for whatever reason, it's obviously very nuanced. They haven't gotten there. Yeah. And and, and and you get this late in the season, you lose by thirty five to Stanford, who I, who I personally have a very high opinion of. But thirty five points is a ton to lose to anybody. Yeah. And you just kind of wonder if it's ever going to click. Are they ever going to kind of get there, or is this going to be kind of one of those seasons where? They end up with 18 or 19 wins, and it's just kind of a forgettable season, and you, you kind of pack up your bags and look towards next year. But, yeah, I, the talent has not been the problem, I don't think. I think there just doesn't seem to be – there seems to be a lack of cohesion, a, a kind of a lack of constant effort. I mean, you saw it against Cal, certainly. Just, I mean, they got up by a ton, 15 in the first half, and then suddenly it's a competitive yep. two-score game at the end. And obviously on Stanford, that was a game where they never really were, were in it, and the, the effort really never showed up, so – yeah, I, I mean, I they're, they're certainly. I mean, they're probably just as talented if you just look at recruiting rankings as everybody besides UCLA, Arizona, and USC. Well, I think it's two positives. One of them, the first one is uh, kind of a surprise that he put up these numbers, considering I don't think he really stood out in either game. But it was Troy Brown, yeah. Oregon's freshman, small forward, uh, averaged 15 points, five and a half rebounds, three three assists in those two games on the road. Um, 
we've heard a lot of opinions on him. Is he one and done? Uh, you look at the projections and our own Evan Daniels from 24-7 Sports, he hasn't pegged as a 13th pick overall. Uh, I believe ESPN hasn't picked as a lottery pick. CBS Sports, I think, has him going in like the 20s. Uh, the, the, uh, the Athletic, they have him going, uh, in the first round as well. Um, it's hard to find mock drafts that don't include Troy Brown mm-hmm. as a first round draft pick, uh, in this summer's draft. But at the same time, it's hard to sit here and think that he's 100% ready. Now, I don't, I don't think he's ready, but that doesn't mean he shouldn't go. I was going to say, I don't think they draft based upon 100% ready. Correct. He's a guy you draft and he'd be 19 years old and you'd stash him for a couple of years and hopefully he develops. I mean, I'm going to say stash makes it sound like he wouldn't play. I think he probably could play 10, 12 minutes on a decent NBA franchise, but he's not a guy that you would expect to come in and have an impact like Dylan Brooks or Jordan Bell have had. Those guys were kind of seasoned players. Um, Kyle Anderson. Kyle Anderson was a guy who did that. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Absolutely. Came out a little. People thought it was kind of early. Went to San Antonio, and now he's a key player. And, and even Dejounte Murray yeah. with the Spurs, two guys from the Pac-12, came out after freshman year. Kind of people were like that seems a little early. I don't know what he's doing. And then they're both you know starting right now in the Spurs, who are one of the top teams in the West. So you, clearly you can do it. But I, I agree. I think it, it, it comes down to kind of what is he looking for. I mean, I think if he came back to Oregon, he could be a part of a team with a ton of talent that could compete for. Certainly a conference championship, maybe another Final Four trip, maybe even more. But is that in his best interest? I mean, what is he trying to accomplish? Because right. we had this conversation a couple weeks ago. If he does come back and he doesn't improve his his stock, he could fall out of the first round yeah. completely. And his window is missed, and then he ends up being a four-year player who goes late second round. And look at Grayson Allen, yeah. for instance. You, you look at Grayson Allen when Oregon played the Blue Devils. Blue Duke Blue Devils in the, the Sweet <laughs> in the Sweet Sixteen uh, in the 2015-2016 season. Uh, Grayson Allen, after that NCAA tournament, was projected, I think, as a top ten pick in the NBA draft. He came back for his junior year, had that kicking incident multiple times, right. was basically forced to come back for his senior year because he was no longer pr- projected as a first round pick because of his. Uh, it's, it's, it's a off court issue on the court. Right. Um, but now as a senior, I don't even think he's projected to go as a first round pick, let alone maybe the first four or five picks in the second round. Yeah. Um, so the NBA drafts on potential. They don't draft for the most part on guys who are ready made. Uh, at least not early on in the first round. The second round draft, or the, the, the second round's all potential. Uh, and then, ex- it, or I shouldn't say that. The, the final like ten picks in the in the first round are our guys who can play right away and help because right. those are playoff teams and they just need to get help right away. The first four or five picks in the second round are, are the same deal. Can we get us? Can we get a steal? Can we get a guy who can come in and help right away? And then after that, it's all based on potential uh, in the draft. And so the longer you stay in college, the worse your potential looks. It's like buying a car on a lot. You know, this, the, the, once you step off the court. Uh, once you play, your, your your value starts depreciating, and the longer you're playing, the less and less you get. Uh, and for Troy Brown, we don't know his situation. We don't know what his family needs are. Does his family need the money? Does he need the money? Does he not like school? Um, I think he's a very level-headed kid from the conversations we've had with him right. here. We had from the conversations that we had uh, with him coming out of high school. And the one thing I will say is, you know, when I talked to him when he committed. And he mentioned that, you know, the one and done topic was brought up once between Dana Allman 
and Troy Brown, and that's the very beginning of the recruiting process between head coach and player. Altman never brought it up again. Troy Brown said he never brought it up again. And he made his decision at, at, for Oregon based off of what he said. If you can go to 24-7 Sports and you can find the story about it, of him saying that he picked Oregon for a four-year experience, not for a one-year experience. So he, he at the time at least, he came in thinking it could be maybe one, two, three years, right. four years at Oregon. He's had a surprising. You know, I think he had a good good weekend. Um, he needs to play better though. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the the question here is that I've got for you, Eric, is what do you do with Victor Bailey? Mm. Because three games in a row now, I think at Oregon State he had a good game, or the, the Civil War game at home he had a good game, uh, and then against California he had thirteen points or nine points off the bench. He had thirteen points off the bench against Stanford. The last two or three weeks. He's taken a step, I think. Well, yeah, I think he had 18 against UCLA. Yeah. Too. I mean, I think his, and I think maybe he had, like, not as big of a game against Oregon State, but it, it'll be interesting to see. I think if they are going to make changes here, is it going to be with the intent to build towards next year or to try to maximize this season? Because Bailey... Can I, you do both at the same time? Both? That's, then that's probably the big question that is, that staff is discussing right now because I would, I would probably argue Elijah Brown starting, and I think that's who you would more than likely move Victor Bailey into the starting lineup over or play more than would be, would be Elijah Brown. But I think Brown, strangely, may give you better upside to win games because he's a, he's a good shot maker when he's on. And we've seen him be both, you know, frankly. He's, he's shot Oregon into, into wins and shot them out of games, but I think he gives them a higher ceiling. But if you are looking at it objectively and kind of thinking, Victor Bailey has provided a lot this season, and I think the upside is tremendous. If you if you do want to move in that direction, it might hurt them in, in a little bit, you know, to finish this season. But it could play big <clears throat> dividends next year, especially if you're concerned about what Troy Brown's doing, because you assume that if Troy Brown returns, Bailey is going to have kind of a tough time breaking that starting lineup. But if Troy Brown does decide to go, he's the guy. That's his spot, I think. I mean, I think that I don't know how he isn't going to be playing there. And, and frankly, there's so many, so much uncertainty that maybe this is something that, you know, we're kind of speaking out of turn here because who knows what everybody's going to do. Right. All these, you know, transfers and people go pro that we don't expect and people, you know, do all sorts of things. They bring in grad transfers. And, but yeah, I, I, I do think Bailey deserves more run. I think he's played really, really well of late. And I think we saw that early on in the season. I think, you know, if his jump shot is falling, which it has, it's loud, and that's kind of what separated the success recently. He is a very valuable player because he's a really good defensive player. He's very athletic. He can get to the rim and finish. And like we said, if he's able to hit that three-point shot, he becomes a threat to hang out in the corner and shoot threes, which I think he did pretty well against Stanford. So I do think he holds a a lot of value, and it'll be kind of interesting to see what Altman decides to do there. And you mentioned mixing up that starting lineup. I just wonder what they can really do at this point. You know, I think that would be one move. I mean, they've kind of already flipped back and forth between Wooten and White, which is something we wanted them to do for a while. I mean, I don't know how you take Peyton Pritchard, Mikhail McIntosh, or Troy Brown out of the starting lineup. I just don't think that makes sense. And frankly, who would replace them? I mean, I don't think putting Abu Kijab or Keith right. Smith in over Troy Brown makes any sense. <laughs> so this would probably be the move, would, right. be, would be to go Bailey over Brown if, if you think that gives you a better chance. I think there's game. also a possibility where Oregon should – I the one thing I think has kind of surprised me this season is that Altman hasn't – or Oregon hasn't embraced who they are mm-hmm. to an extent. I think Oregon has, has tried to play big without really any big guys yeah. on this team. 
because you look at you know previous years they had Jordan Bell who had some kind of a back basket game. He at least had the strength. Elgin Cook, Chris Boucher, Dwayne Benjamin, uh, Dylan Brooks, obviously. Um, they had guys that they could go to on the low block and, and get something out of it. I don't feel like this year's team has yeah. that guy. Mm-hmm. Um, Kenny Wooten at times has, has flashed. Um, McIntosh has has flashed as a downhill, you know, straight line driver, right, but nothing really. But back nothing to back to the yeah. basket. Um, and I, the one thing that's really surprised me is that Oregon hasn't said screw it. Let's let's embrace who we are and let's play super small and super fast. And so my my wonder is maybe do you take out a Paul White and a Kenny Wooten and you tell McIntosh at the five and you ask Troy Brown to say, look, you, you if you want to really maximize your NBA potential and you need to play the power forward spot to show that you can play you know more than just two positions at the next level and you're gonna play the, you're gonna play the four we're gonna put uh, Troy Troy uh, Elijah Brown at the three. Victor Bailey at the two, Peyton Pritchard at the one. We're gonna press and press and press. And for the big guys, you're you know obviously against Arizona, we're gonna need to play a little bit bigger, and we're not gonna be able to play this way once uh, it shows at least on on the court that we can't handle it. If we can, great, that's great. Uh, but if you're Oregon, I, I'm surprised they haven't embraced the full small ball lineup. And, and, and just press and trap and, and play really fast. And if you recall in Stanford, and this is probably one of the last topics before we talk recruiting, but when they did have success, and I think they cut about a 15-point lead down to six over the course of like two minutes, it was when they pressed Stanford. Yes. And I don't know why. They didn't go back to it in the second half. I wonder if Altman just figured it's the game got away. got away. I don't, don't give film on it. Exactly. But but they did seem to have some success when they turned to that press, and that wasn't the smaller lineup. And I, I do wonder if maybe they kind of go – Maybe this is, I mean, because that is really, you know, the way that they had had success prior to having both Jordan Bell and Chris Boucher around yeah. was was with a lineup that had like a Dwayne Benjamin at the five in yes. that 2014-15 season, and then they had Cook at the four, and it was just a smaller rotation. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see if they do, do make some changes there. I think that press is something you'd probably like to see them bring back. Stanford is kind of the unique team that doesn't have very good perimeter players. I don't know if you can press Washington like that because they have so many good ball handlers. Washington State, you could probably do a lot of different things with, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see kind of how they they approach the rest of the season from a, I guess, kind of a personnel perspective. Shifting gears towards recruiting, real quick, we'll we'll kind of touch on this. Uh, we are now in a dead period where uh, coaches are not allowed to have any kind of contact face to face. I think call high school prospects can call coaches, right? Uh, but coaches cannot call. Uh, the prospects, because signing day now is, what, two and a half days away, Wednesday the 7th. Uh, Oregon has 23 verbal commitments uh, on this class right now for 2018. They've got probably roughly, what, 12 prospects still on the board in some capacity. Um, this weekend we saw Jackson Cravens, Tyler Manoa, and Joshua Moore, uh, all defensive Players give verbal commitments over the weekend uh, to programs other than Oregon. Uh, Joshua Moore went to Texas over the Ducks without even visiting Oregon. He had that, that was just a we another team in my final yeah. two. Um, and then Jackson Cravens committed to Utah over the Ducks, uh, and then Tyler Manoa. Uh, the Ducks stopped recruiting him for about the last week or so. Yeah. Once I think they realized 
they weren't going to get him. Um, he committed to UCLA uh, over Utah and Oregon. So a couple guys are off the board. We're going to have another one come down, depending on when you're listening to this podcast. Miles Battle commits Monday afternoon. Uh, and from there, it sounds like you know six, seven, eight guys are going to be National Signing Day decisions, and it's going to really dictate where Oregon's class finishes. It sure will. I mean, the, the guys that are on the board, you mentioned there's a number of guys out there, are all of, pretty much all of the four-star variety. And some of them are of the top 100 variety. You look at Devin Williams and Penny Sewell. Those are top, almost, I think, basically top 50 recruits um, that would really bump Oregon's class up in terms of ranking, but also just in terms of kind of uh, just the caliber of guys they're bringing in. And, and it'll be interesting to see how things go. I mean, Oregon is really going up against... For pretty much every one of these guys. Blue Bloods. The Blue Bloods. The Alabamas, the USC's, the Florida States, the world. Battle you mentioned is going against Ole Miss, so that's not quite the same thing, but you look, I mean, Devin Williams and Michael Aziki are both USC and Oregon. You know, Florida State is going against Oregon. Trey Sean Harrison. Penny Sewell. It's Alabama and USC probably more than Oregon and Alabama. Yes. I mean, there, there is, these are big schools that Oregon is going to have to beat here. And so it, it, it'll be a tall task, especially with a staff that is brand new to do this. But if they are able to win a handful of these recruiting battles, I think it'll be kind of a, a, a big sign nationally of, of kind of what Cristobal and company are capable of doing. Um, and, and I think, frankly, it should be a pretty big, you know, very commendable. And it's something that should be quite an accomplishment because to come in here with, again, a staff that hasn't been in Oregon very long, I think you know, probably the longest anyone's been here is about 18 months, right? Or no, not even that long, about 13 months, 14 months. Um, and then, you know, a number of guys are barely have been here at all. Um, that would be a huge boon, and it'll be interesting to see, you know, kind of how this next couple of days go because it could be kind of telling for the crystal ball era. Yeah, the Ducks are currently 14th in the country with 22 verbal commitments. USC is tops in the Pac-12 with 11 Washington, uh, 11th in the country. Uh, Washington is second at 12th, and then the Ducks are third, and then UCLA is just right behind at 17th in the country. Uh, and then there's no other team left in the Pac-12, and that's ranked inside the top 25, and. Uh, there's that one team that Oregon fans have kind of created a rivalry with, Florida State. They're one spot behind the Ducks, uh, for, at 15th overall. Uh, and, you know, the Trayshawn Harrison thing could, could sway either, either school finishing above or below the other. Well, and Andrew Johnson, apparently, Oregon linebacker commit is picking between Oregon and Florida State, which we didn't know that they were picking. Right. You know, we thought that was just he was going to Oregon and he kind of reaffirmed his commitment. Now there's another hat on the table, so. Certainly going to be some intrigue there. Another guy that Oregon has committed, Elijah Winston. Went to um, USC. Visited USC. He could pick the Trojans, which Oregon could kind of go head-to-head for three recruits right now, and they could go three for three just as easy as they could go for three, I think. Now, the thing with USC here is they've got limited room. Um, I'm not going to sit here and say they're going to turn down Devin Williams and Michael Ezeki, uh, but it could get it could get interesting to see how they – Finish their class because they've still got some guys on the board like a five-star Elijah Griffin. Uh, I think Isaac Taylor Stewart's also considering them. Uh, they've got uh, a couple linebackers. Uh, Solomon Tulia Pupu is is still considering the uh, the Trojans and you know some key spots. So it, for USC's lack of room could benefit Oregon here because they may get Devin Williams or they may get Michael Ozeki, but that could be the only receiver that they're able to take. And uh, I think the Ducks are the obvious choice for uh, – right. if they don't go to USC, uh, they're probably going to Oregon. Uh, so maybe that helps Oregon or a consolation prize. You, 
if you will. Um, but Oregon, Oregon still has a possibility to finish with their best class in, in program history, or at least tie it, which is 11th uh, in the 24-7 composite era. And it's worth mentioning, just really quickly, at receiver Oregon is obviously after a number of these big four-star guys. They also tripped this past weekend J.J. Tucker, a receiver who does not have an Oregon offer right now, but I think the feeling is if they miss on a number of these guys, he'll get one. And he'll commit. And he'll commit and sign. He's a a solid prospect. He's obviously not on the same caliber as the other guys are looking at, but there are some kind of contingency plans in place. I'm sure there are some uh, other names that we aren't as familiar with that they could somehow sweep in after signing day four on the defensive line or at linebacker if if this all kind of goes you know, upside down on them. So just because they don't land all these guys on Wednesday, that doesn't mean that there aren't options for them, I guess, kind of following signing day. And that will do it for us here on the Duck Territory with Educk Podcast. For Eric Scopel and myself, Matt Prem, go to iTunes and look us up under Duck Territory Podcast. You can find us there. Also go to duckterritory.com. You can read all our work there as well. So until we talk to you next Monday where we will be recapping signing day and we'll be talking Oregon basketball, uh, we will talk to you soon. Thanks, guys. See ya.